Gerontological Society of America, Advancing Innovation in Aging. GSA on Aging. I'm Howard Degenholz, Social Media Editor of The Gerontologist, a publication of the Gerontological Society of America. I interviewed Stephanie Prost from the University of Louisville. Stephanie is a social worker, and her research focuses on incarcerated populations. She has a paper coming out in the Gerontologist titled Prisons and COVID-19, a Desperate Call for Gerontological Expertise in Correctional Healthcare. We had a very interesting conversation about the challenges of caring for an aging prison population and the added complexity of dealing with COVID-19. Hi, Stephanie. It's nice to meet you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you. Great. So I was really um, interested to see your paper. We identified it um, at the gerontologist as something really uh, important and timely. And I wanted to ask you about your work in this area and tell me what got you interested in uh, people who are incarcerated and in particular uh, the uh, aging population in um, in jails and prisons. Awesome. Um, so I've actually been working uh, in an area kind of surrounding older adulthood in correctional settings since about 2015. And my dissertation was in this area too, um, namely kind of on the use of peer caregiving, informal peer caregiving within correctional settings. And I, um, in some ways, have always been comfortable in these institutions. I've never been incarcerated. Um, however, I did uh, kind of grow up with multiple family members who were incarcerated. So I was kind of acutely aware of some of the experiences that these individuals would face and, um, you know, kind of understanding what visitation was like and, you know, hearing the sounds of those gates behind you and how the stainless steel tables were always sticky uh, you know, from previous visitors. So it's always been a passion of mine. I'm a social worker first and foremost. And so a lot of my uh, kind of clinical practice involves the justice system, namely younger adults, but same general idea, kind of that interface between social work and, and forensics. And this is, you know, this area aging behind bars, it's gotten a lot more coverage in the last I would say 10 years, which is fantastic. Uh, but I think that generally speaking, the public is a, a little less aware of kind of the shifting demography of our prisons. And I think sometimes we just have this expectation. It's just, you know, young and agile people, I don't know, working out all day. I'm not sure what <laughs> they think necessarily, but um, the reality is a lot of our correctional settings do look more like long-term care settings than, than they ever have before. And the problem is going to become uh, bigger and more costly, uh, especially at the state level. That's generally where I do a lot of my work. And so I'm not alone in this kind of battle, so to speak. There's uh, many really awesome researchers and practitioners who are doing very good work uh, surrounding the intersection of aging and criminal justice. So I think the people who read The Gerontologist and people who work in gerontology, either as uh, practitioners or researchers, we have our mental models about aging 
in institutions, but usually the mental model is a nursing facility or assisted living, or for um, people who are living in the community, it's uh, family support and some paid help, whether it's uh, private pay or subsidized through Medicaid. But what is caregiving like for a disabled elderly person who is incarcerated? Wow. Um, so I too have been trying to figure out exactly what caregiving looks like in these settings. I can tell you what I do know um, that largely uh, these are ruled by uh, paid uh, persons, meaning that they are provided some you know salary. I think that might be a, a generous term, but the idea that many of uh, the individuals who engage in peer caregiving are uh, assigned these roles or they kind of rally for them, they apply and they get them. Um, they can be higher paid compared to some of the other opportunities that uh, in these settings. However, there are um, uh, also kind of more highly regulated peer caregiving uh, roles such as watchers. That's probably the best known kind of peer caregiving situation whereby individuals who are incarcerated are sort of charged with the responsibility of uh, regular um, sort of check-ins with folks who are in crisis psychiatric uh, treatment units. So they do like 15 minute rounds where they kind of walk around and make sure that the individual who is currently receiving uh, crisis or psychiatric intervention is safe uh, so as to reduce the risk of self-harm. Um, but my focus has been mostly on uh, the older adult uh, sort of caregivers and what did those look like. And based on the little we know, um, there's some qu really great qualitative work Kristen Cloyas and her team did at the Louisiana State Penitentiary that's at Angola several years back. And they did some qualitative interviews with folks who were engaged in this peer caregiving. And it was primarily hospice volunteers, actually, those who had a work assignment and then were doing this on top of their sort of, you know, jobs. And so they would spend their days doing their work-related tasks. And then when they had an opportunity, they would go down to the hospice unit, full-fledged hospice unit, up to eight beds. And there they would engage in a lot of the same activities that we see in our community settings. Uh, you know, those assistance with activities of daily living, transferring, ambulation, showering, bathing, feeding, but then also some more instrumental uh, supports, things like writing letters to family, spiritual counseling, lay counseling, things that just provide a sense of support uh, and belongingness to those um, individuals receiving kind of end-of-life support. So where I'm working, my, my research area is actually trying to provide a better portrait, a better understanding of uh, both formal and informal caregiving within these settings. What is your best understanding of what's going on with regard to COVID-19 in nursing homes. And, and I guess it um, affects the general population, the entire facility, as well as staff and visitors. Right. So I think that a lot of what we can understand about what's going on in prisons is pretty closely parallel to what's going on in community long-term care settings. There's still congregate settings. Um, There's still often challenges uh, regarding social distancing or physical distancing. But of course, the added layer of incarceration and social control really 
can kind of shape how to uh, manage these large scale pandemics. And this happens with other contagious conditions like the flu uh, with some regularity. So um, of course the rate of mortality is much higher with COVID, but some of the kind of unique circumstances surrounding incarceration and COVID um, things like you're fearful of maybe disclosing uh, your symptoms generally because there might be a, a layer of distrust that exists between the formal care system, the healthcare system, and the persons who are incarcerated. Uh, but it's further compounded by the the understood consequences of reporting those symptoms. So there is reports that we're seeing um, throughout the country of folks who will make known their symptoms to correctional officers or to uh, the formal care teams, and then because medical isolation might not always be physically possible in the setting, they might be at capacity. Those individuals can sometimes be placed in solitary confinement, which we know is associated with multiple negative effects. So it kind of fuels a reticence to report um, these symptoms. Um, Some of the other things that we know is basic hygiene uh, is difficult to maintain on a daily basis, never mind in the midst of kind of this large scale uh, contagious condition um, a lot of the the, the um, sort of commissary items that are integral to sort of maintaining health and well-being in these settings uh, have a price. And so you might not be able to afford an additional bar of soap. You might not be able to afford to you know, do A, B, and C or to have a new toothbrush or those sorts of things. Um, and so as a result, people might not be able to engage in the kind of hand washing you would want to see in the community Uh, Now, there are um, indications that policies are being enacted so that these sorts of supplies are readily available, but we've also received conflicting reports by some folks um, kind of informally through letters or through um, contraband phones who are saying like, no, that's not the case. They might say that they're giving us A, B, and C, but we're not seeing it or it's not enough, even if they are providing it. So... um, Again, a lot of the, the conditions or the consequences of uh, managing a, a pandemic in a long-term care setting exist within the, the carceral setting, but then there's these additional kind of unique factors, uh, the hierarchical nature of the relationships between correctional officers and the people who are incarcerated, um, kind of a, a lack of trust, not only on beho- behalf of the person who's incarcerated, but perhaps the, the service and the security staff as well. So there's kind of this push and pull as to, um, do I report and stand the consequences? Do I just keep it to myself and hope that I make it through the night? Um, you know, never mind the fact that the individuals who are in these settings have markedly higher rates and earlier age of onset of these complex chronic health conditions. Mm -hmm. So people are getting much sicker, uh, in these settings than we see in the community. Is there any data on the incidence or prevalence in uh, prisons? Do we know anything about mortality rates in these settings? So there are actually multiple organizations that are working to kind of synthesize uh, state-level dashboards uh, of COVID um, insight. So things like uh, uh, tests administered total, like uh, not only the men and women who are incarcerated, but also the staff as well. They're also cataloging positivity rates um, and those who have recovered as well as those who have died as a result of of COVID infection. 
And so the, there are several groups. COVID prison data is one. Um, and I think that there are several um, academic institutions that are also seeking to catalog this information. I think prison policy initiative, Vera Institute, there's several large scale non-for-profits that are also working to kind of compile the data and get it out to the public so that folks understand kind of the, the, the nature of COVID in a correctional setting while sharing some similarities, like I had said, is a whole nother, you know, ball game. Uh, the New York Times has been reporting on this for quite a while, making mention that the vast majority of our hotspots are in these settings. And I think that the public is under the impression that, you know, you, you do the crime, you do the time, and that might include infection. Um, but the reality is these places are not, they're not distinct from ourselves. They're not really separated. I think we think out of sight, out of mind. Um, but we still have folks who go into these settings. That's job. Like, that's where they work. So they're going into these settings, doing their, you know, work-related duties, and then coming back to the community, to their own families, and to your supermarket and things like that. And so the needs of the individuals who are incarcerated, correctional health is intimately tied to our own public health. So in these uh, various databases and reports that are going into it, you said that there are hotspots. How do you think it compares relative to what we've seen in nursing homes where the nursing home population really has uh, unfortunately accounted for a disproportionate rate of uh, of mortality as well as a positive infection of mortality as well as a positive infection. So thus far, I, I don't know that I've come across a data set that compares um, persons who are in a long-term care setting to persons who are incarcerated. I have seen long-term care setting against general population like community and I've sure. seen carceral setting against community. Um, but in some ways, long-term care settings do have some protective um, facets. Namely, a lot of the folks who work in these settings have a lot of medical training, uh, and they're kind of up against multiple um, agencies by which they're being evaluated and assessed regularly. So they have a pretty good understanding of disease communicability and those sorts of things. Um, you also have the opportunity often to segregate wings and to have private beds or to have um, semi-private rooms. Whereas, especially in lower security institutions, you have these massive congregate sort of dormitory style um, spaces that there's just not really a way to, to keep people physically distant from one another. Um, some of um, the problems that we've had with older adulthood in these settings broadly has been how are you getting older adults down from these top bunks um, without increasing their risk of falls. Uh, but then you have all of those folks, if their classification is low enough, mixed in with folks who are young, um, who might be infected, uh, but be asymptomatic kind of right alongside folks who have these really complex medical conditions. Right. Uh, so, and what you're describing is a situation where you have people assisting each other, but they are doing it, as you say, peer to peer, or what we might say informal caregiving, but with, uh, without the training, without uh, PPE, without gloves, without masks um, in a setting where even getting a bar of soap is uh is a bit of a luxury. 
Right. And I, I'd like to say that some of the informal reports we've seen, of course, there's no systematic, you know, comprehensive portrait just yet, but I would like to say that the vast majority of folks who are incarcerated are working to support kind of other people. They're in it together. Uh, they're doing their best with what they have. Um, I know in the Florida Department of Corrections, they're wearing triple layered denim masks. I mean, the things it's probably like breathing through a piece of cardboard. Um, and we do know that those informal um, sort of supports will exist where they might help someone transfer. They might help clean up if they've had some issues with incontinence and things like that. They might help get them to a toilet if they're not, you know, in a space that has access to their own toilet. Some of the problem with this, though, is also federal legislation, PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, often forbids contact, physical contact with other people who are incarcerated um, as well as with staff, of course. But the idea is to reduce the risk of sexual victimization during incarceration. Um, the federal government said, you know what? You can't have physical contact with anyone, no matter what, whether it's helping them get in and out of a wheelchair, moving with their rollator, um, or, you know, engaging in, in a consensual relationship. So, um, so how there's do you, How do you do personal care in that environment? That's a great question. Um, so what we believe is probably the case is that the personal care needs go unmet. Uh, and I don't have any stats that I can hand to you just yet. Uh, but what I've seen out of, um, the UK, I have a colleague there, uh, Warren Stewart, who's doing some fantastic work on informal care and informal social supports. Um, you know, there is this sort of tenuous walk that our carers have to navigate where they're trying to help someone, whether it's out of the kindness of their heart or, or some other reason, but they are fearful that they're going to be written up for maybe helping that person get to the bathroom or, you know, if they fall out of bed and they reach to help the person that if they get caught doing that, that uh, they're going to stand some pretty substantial consequences. So it's this constant, um, you know, how, how do you let this person go, you know, potentially at risk, whether that's due to ambulation or some other need, or maybe they're not eating enough and you can see that they, you know, they've got or, some sort of neurological condition where they can't even feed themselves. How do you let that person go unfed right. um, while putting so, your potential risk at, you know, elevating your own risk of being so, written up? Uh, do the same rules apply in an infirmary setting or the hospice uh, type setting you were describing a moment ago? So correctional policy varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, and some states have, uh, in kind of an effort to combat some of these large-scale problems that we're seeing, they have developed specialty care units, nursing units, hospice units, assisted living units. And I have seen that some of those um, kind of um, some of those restrictions are relaxed because there's often care staff, paid care staff through contracted medical um, provider on site. So there's, you know, an RN or a DON um, who's accessible. It's supervised. Then, yeah. Yep. So it, it's a different kind of setting. The area that we've been working to explore more recently is kind of what goes on in the dormitories before folks are making their way right. into the nursing units. How are they making sense and working uh, within the constraints of their environment to help folks who aren't quite, um, aren't facing such a high level of disability that they need to be in the nursing unit yet or that they've been discharged altogether to 
whether it's home confinement or compassionate release. So I, I suspect that it's similar to what we see in community settings where there's very high levels of disability among people living in the community and, in fact, comparable to the level of disability that you see in uh, nursing home settings and people are uh, getting by and it's not necessarily a good life or a bath every day, um, but just getting by. Right. And that's, you know, there's, there's no bathtubs. <laughs> so, sure. so right, um, if you are, you know, and one of the things that we've written about quite a bit, my colleagues and I on this paper have, you know, also worked on other projects, this phenomenon of accelerated aging cannot be ignored. I think, you know, when we think older adult in the community, we think 50, 60, something like that. But the reality is folks who are in these settings have endured experiences prior to their incarceration and during their incarceration that have kind of, you know, fast paced or fast tracked their, their morbidity. Um, and as a result, you've got 45 year olds who look maybe more like what we think of older adult in the community. What do you think is going to happen over the next several months to a year with regard to COVID-19 in these settings? Do you see it becoming a public policy issue in the way that uh, the outbreaks in nursing homes have really captured a lot of attention and and engendered action from uh, state departments of health and the federal government? Or do you see this um, being kept out of the spotlight in the way that, uh, in general, prisons are out of sight and out of mind from uh, from society. Yeah, I um, as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, what do I think is going to happen, and what do I hope is going to happen, and they're very different. <laughs> well, answer both uh, questions. <laughs> so, um, to to speak of what I think might happen. I think we can kind of look at what's going on in San Quentin. I think that that's probably the most explicit um, example of what we might see in the future. Um, People have been decrying the conditions, congregate settings broadly and correctional settings narrowly since the beginning of the pandemic. We had been writing and tweeting and op-edding about this pending crisis that we are going to see in our correctional settings back in March and February. And um, you know, some of the challenge with this population is that it, it's difficult to kind of engage the public um, to understand that their health is intimately tied to the health of, of individuals who are incarcerated. It is easy for us, we, the public, to um, to say, you know, this per- this group of people is different from myself. They are distinct. We other them very easily. It doesn't affect us. Um, and so, you know, we have a tendency to kind of say this individual committed a crime, particularly the ones that are really egregious. Um, and thus, you know, they can wait it out and we'll see if they make it out on the other side. Um, there has been, importantly, many jurisdictions that have engaged in large-scale decarceration. We have seen, especially at the county, like the jail level, we have seen um, jurisdictions work toward reducing arrests and uh, letting folks go uh, on home home incarceration if their sentence is short enough. We've seen um, efforts to reduce bail so that 
folks are you know, not mm-hmm. being detained at all. Uh, but at the prison level, what becomes difficult is that those charges are often uh, longer and that individuals might be um, held to a standard, uh, a minimum uh, mandatory sentence whereby they aren't even eligible for parole until a certain year, right? 15, right. 10 years from now. And this is often concomitant or often kind of aligns with their charge. So, you know, the more violent or the more socially reprehensible the charge, uh, the longer folks will stay. And the reality is the folks with whom we're working, the, the folks with whom the article is sort of directed, these are folks who are not always eligible to go home. And if they are eligible to go home by standard parole practices, it's not going to be until their 75th, 85th birthday. Um, And so, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, pretty much every state in the union has a compassionate release policy or a medical parole policy in place. But what we have seen is kind of a wide scale uh, reticence to embrace it, to leverage the existing policies. Now, a lot of them are pretty draconian and they have some really awful lines in them, which will say essentially that if you get better or your prognosis is no longer terminal, you got to come back to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least getting people out, you know, into the community where their needs are probably better met uh, and likely less expensive due to the kind of costs of healthcare. We could at least have the conversation now that they're there, do they really need to go back into in these settings? So that's what I would like to see happen um, is, uh, kind of this expedited process whereby those who are the most medically fragile are not sentenced to death by COVID and are released into the community. And if, if at all possible, if they do have um, supportive social structures, if they've got family with whom they're still engaged, who can meet their care needs, along with, you know, wraparound services, awesome. If not, facilitating partnerships with long-term care settings that are capable of meeting their complex medical needs. That's been one of our biggest hiccups. Um, I'm working with some other organizations now in trying to get people into the community who have actually been granted compassionate release. They've actually been granted the ability to go home, but getting that release plan in place where the long-term care setting will say, yes, we will take someone who has a sexual offense. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it. Right. And, and right now there's not, there's not federal legislation or uh, statutory language that protects individuals who have these sorts of crimes uh, to receive comprehensive care in the community. So when people are, uh, let's say somebody does qualify for a compassionate release, um, who pays for the services that might be required, whether it's uh, housing or personal care needs or nursing needs, uh, presumably, um, whether it's in a nursing facility or uh, assisted living or in uh, in a uh, rented apartment or in a family home? Um, do these programs pay for services or are they back into our um, general dysfunctional long-term care system? General dysfunctional long-term care system. Uh, it could be a memoir. So I think that uh, much of that is dictated, of course, by by the variation that exists across jurisdictions. So every state has a different policy and some are very well enumerated and very clear about who does what and who's responsible for what payments and that sort of thing. But that is driven 
primarily by whether you're released kind of off paper, so to speak, or if you remain on supervision. So there is a distinction there between some of these mechanisms. So medical parole would mean the person is still under supervision of the state. And so thus the general kind of consensus would be that the state is footing the bill. Um, however, there are, you know, nuance to some of these whereby an individual might be responsible for paying the fee associated with their ankle monitor, or they might be responsible for co-payments as they go into uh, an inpatient setting, or if they have to go and have diagnostics or assessments run. So again, there is some variation there. If the person is released outright, which some of the policies just say the sentence is terminated, you have time served, you are out on you know, free and clear, the expectation then is that the case managers or uh, kind of relief and discharge planners are working to establish Medicaid and Medicare, if, if eligible, before the person is released so that they are setting up those appointments um, and thus it's being paid through kind of the community supports. So, so that might be one way to address this, which would be to use the medical parole system, which might, um, which might make facilitate moving people out of, um, institutions out of prisons and into community settings. But that does put some pressure on those community supports, which are already, well, even before COVID-19, we're right. facing workforce shortages and financing um, challenges. And now with COVID-19, the workforce shortages are even more acute as workers are mm-hmm. themselves getting sick and restrictions are placed on facilities in terms of the type of staff that can, and volunteers and family members who can come in and out of facilities. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about adding additional residents who are uh, complex, to say the least, in terms of not just their physical needs, but also, as you point out, um, emotional and behavioral uh, challenges that they pose uh, uh, to have them in the community or in a a nursing facility. I don't don't see good solutions here. I see more challenges. It's not all doom and gloom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There are... So far as we're aware, there are several um, jurisdictions that have worked to kind of tackle this problem head on. And I think one of the most noteworthy is 60 West. It's a long-term care facility in Connecticut that is specifically designed for the needs of kind of the correctional patient. Um, And in that way, um, you know, the agency went forward and sought explicitly to serve this, this group of people. So they were aware of individuals who were not only coming out, who were sort of free and clear, but also how to meet the needs of folks who are still in supervision. Uh, That, of course, is not very common. And the physical constraints that are brought on by having these really unique long-term care settings with the sort of forensic undertone, um, those are unusual. uh, And that might not always work for every um, kind of constituency. In Kentucky, they recently completed a kind of legislative research commission report, and the report ended in so many ways kind of with a shrug, which is, you know, we don't really know what to do, and not a lot of people Mm -hmm. have published wide scale, you know, whether it's scholarly or even 
informally as to, do you take a nursing home and make it a prison? Do you take an old prison and make it a nursing home? Do you right. contract with a nursing home to make it a prison? I mean, um, some of the cases we're working with now informally, I'm offering some support to some of these federal cases. You know, what'll happen is the long-term care setting will say, absolutely, yes, we've got a Medicaid bed. They've got to do a 14-day quarantine. And then once we get counsel on the phone with the long-term care setting and the admissions coordinator or director or, or you know, person who's in charge of those decisions will say, oh, well, if they have a violent offense or a sexual offense, then, then we're not going to take them because sexual offense specifically, then they're often required to list the address of the long-term care facility in the right. sexual offense registry. And that is a huge red flag uh, for not only the agency itself, but of course, residents, families and things like that. And then you, even if they were to have an individual in the setting who, again, potentially had one of these offenses, you have to think about kind of the, the daily task, the ins and outs of how do you facilitate visitation with the other people in the facility if they have you know, uh, young grandchildren or, or something like that. And this person can't have, you know, they can't be within so many yards of an individual mm-hmm. under the age of 18. So right. the practicalities of how do you meet the needs of the population. So I think where we would be leaning, if, you know, someone just gave us a, a bunch of money, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think where we would be leaning would probably be uh, the retrofitting of long-term care nursing uh, settings to to meet the needs of a carceral population. And I say that because the restrictions of a long-term care setting are often higher or, or uh, the accommodations, the needs that have to be met are often more rigorous than is building a prison and retrofitting it. So if you were to take old long-term care facilities and to uh, somehow modify them so as to meet the needs of a correctional population, uh, you know, it's in a community where the, registry would not affect individuals kind of right there in that space. Um, I think that that would probably be our best fit, but it's going to be expensive and you have to be mindful of how do you say to policymakers or community members, we want to take money away from these other social causes, education or, you know, wraparound services for other vulnerable adults and pour them into a forensic nursing center. Yeah. Do you know if any of the large national chains have uh, looked into this business, the nursing home chains? I don't. Do you? No, it just occurred to me. <laughs> well, um, I know of the one facility because it did get a lot of press. Um, and they, you know, again, they tailor their services to the population. So that's the only one I've seen so far, but I haven't done kind of a wide scale systematic review of, of the nation. It occurs to me that in all of my years doing research on long-term care and nursing homes, I never imagined that there might be a population for whom moving to a nursing home might be an improvement in their life and their quality of life. Yep. Yep. It absolutely is. In fact, so my construct of interest has always been quality of life and I've gotten some pushback uh, from people on multiple sides of the fence as to like, why would you measure quality of life of folks who are incarcerated? Like it seems almost contraindicated. Um, but it is like the holistic barometer of, of an individual's experience. And so why not look to their subjective rating? Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that everyone who's in an institution necessarily sees that as an improvement. Uh, but we do see folks who disclose you know, uh, resilience, spirituality, and opportunity to kind of give back to others in a way that they've never done before. 
Um, and so, you know, why not seek to improve that individual's quality of life? Because that has multiple positive effects. You can reduce the perception of pain. You can reduce mental health um, issues. You can also further leverage informal or non-psychotropic intervention for those folks. And so it it just seems like a no brainer. Well, I think that is a really fascinating idea and um, topic for another interview, which would be to really think about what does quality of life mean for an incarcerated population, incarcerated aging population, especially as we think about the societal constructs of Mm -hmm. um, punishment and rehabilitation and what do we think quality of life should be and what does it mean uh, subjectively for people in those uh, settings. But let's, um, let's, Let's let's make a, uh, a reservation to talk about that in the future. <laughs> Excellent. Listen, if you're interested, uh, you know my lo- long-term goals is participatory, community-driven, uh, psychometric development. I mean, we need to ask folks what the story is before we can try to tell it. So, um, some of the initial work we've already done with the WHOQAL, the World Health Organization's Quality of Life Measure, which is a fantastic, beautiful, comprehensive measure. Um, you know, the factor structure is a little wonky in some places. And that tells us that, you know, you can't always take a gold standard measure and retrofit it into a carceral setting. It doesn't always work. Um, So cognitive interviewing, having an opportunity to to learn from individuals who are actually living the life. What does it mean? How do we make it better? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie. This has really been a fascinating conversation, and I really want to applaud you and your work for really uh, bringing to our attention this population, the special needs that they uh, that they have, and hopefully will uh, help to bring some more attention to uh, the challenges that uh, that are faced by an aging population in prisons. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I want to introduce uh, Mandy Garber. Mandy is a psychiatrist, and uh, she has lived and worked in Pittsburgh, and she's worked at the VA. She's worked at the uh, Fairly Qualified Community Health Centers and also at the jail in Pittsburgh as a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk to her about um, COVID-19 in the uh, for incarcerated people, so Mandy, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. What do you think uh, clinicians, mental health professionals, can and should do uh, to care for um, people with COVID nineteen in prisons, and in particular the the sort of aging, hard to reach population, hard to serve? It's a hard question for multiple reasons because. As a clinician, my focus is very narrow. I want the, the, the patient, the, uh, the individual to get better. Um, now, the administration of the, of, the, um, of the penitentiary, the jail, their main focus is ensuring that everybody is safe um, and that no one um, escapes from prison and that um, no one commits any, any crime. So for me, it's important that, um, you know, if, you know, if somebody, especially if somebody who's mentally ill is um, 
you know, showing signs that um, that they moved to a single unit, which everybody would agree with, administration would also agree with, but also that perhaps they're not, um, they can move around somewhat, um, especially if they have a mental illness, so that doesn't worsen their paranoia. Um, but, you know, jails are, prisons are overcrowded, so they don't particularly have um, extra room to, to um, you know, most of most um, prison cells are, are inhabited by at least um, two individuals. So um, they don't necessarily um, have uh, one room, one cell per, per individual. And if you say, well, then all the elderly patient, all the elderly um, uh, um, inmates um, should have um, single large sized rooms so that um, they can breathe easily and not um, expose each other. Um, again, you know, can the prison uh, um, actually accommodate um, that request? Um, not necessarily. It would make sense that, for one, elderly um, individuals um, are in are in single in single cells, and that they are they have um, well ventilated cells, um, and um, you know. But um, the reality is. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's um, if that can always be um, be um, accommodated. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Mandy. It was nice to connect. Thank you, Howard. It's it's been good. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various disciplines related to gerontology, and to foster the use of gerontological research in forming public policy. Thank you.